It is such a joy to be here with you again today. I bring greetings from Church of the Resurrection. In particular, I saw Father Stephen Godier yesterday, and he specifically asked me to pass on his greetings to you and let you know that he prays for you and thinks of you often. I wish that my wife and my daughter could be here. My wife is named Kristen. Uh, unfortunately, she had commitments at Church of the Resurrection. My little daughter, Evelyn, is almost two years old, and she's at that fun age where she is suddenly very verbal and is talking a lot and learning a lot of things, and it's so much fun and also so terrifying <laughs> because now I am on the hook. I am now responsible for helping her learn how to become a well-adjusted member of society. There's this whole body of knowledge that we expect kids to learn somewhere in the first seven or so years of their life. A lot of them are very basic politeness issues, right? Like, uh, if you see someone that you know, you say hi. If someone introduces themselves, you say, nice to meet you. If I want something from you, I say, please. Some of them are exchanges. So let's try this. If I say thank you, you say? You're welcome. Unless you work at Chick-fil-A, in which case you say? My pleasure. Perfect. <laughs> if I say, I'm sorry, you say? I forgive you, right? Like, that was kind of like, yeah. Like, we all know that's what the answer is. Like, every five-year-old knows that the answer to I'm sorry is I forgive you. But those of us who have been around a little longer know it, it, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, it kind of does. Like, if, if I'm walking down the street and I bump into you, it's a busy street, I, I'm sorry. Like, I don't expect you to hold a grudge. If I spill water at the dinner table, right? These are basic offenses. The I'm sorry, I forgive you exchange works for those. But all of us have this threshold at which I'm sorry just doesn't cut it anymore. I remember the first time and last time I ever punched someone out of anger. I was seven. And my first grade class was lined up. It was some kind of assembly. I don't remember what it was for. But the whole, the whole school was there. And I, I'm near the front of the line. And suddenly I feel my shorts tugged down around my legs, and the next thing I know, they're down at my ankles. And so I quickly pull them up, and I'm, I'm, I'm mortified that this happened, and I turn around to see who did it, and there's this kid running to the back of the line, and everybody's pointing at him. <laughs> so I run back there. I don't know where our teacher was. But in my righteous indignation, I clench my fist, and I still remember the thought that went through my head. This was the thought. The face or the stomach will hurt too much, so I'll punch him in the chest. And I did. I don't know why I thought the chest was like the merciful option, but, but somehow that worked in my head. And I've, I've wondered before, like, why was that the thought that went through my head as a seven-year-old? And I think what I was doing was I was doing the math. I was measuring the weight of what happened to me, the pain that I experienced to my ego, against the pain that I was going to inflict on his body. Zero pain was not sufficient. That was not going to cut it for me. Bloody nose, maybe too much. So the chest it was. From a young age, we have this deeply ingrained sense of justice. We want things, if, if somebody does something wrong, we want there to be consequences, especially if it is towards us. If someone takes something from us, we want it to be restored to us. 
If someone hurts us, we want them to experience the same hurt that we experienced. We want them to be as sorry about what they did as we are about what they did. And the worse the offense, the worse we want them to feel before we forgive them. See, the reason why sorry works for small offenses is because sorry is a small payment. It's a way of saying, you know what, I'm wrong. It's a way of humbling myself, accepting fault, taking a little blow to my ego, and we're offering this person their dignity in a small way. And so if it's a small offense, I say, I forgive you. I see that you feel bad. But I know, and it pains me to say this, I know that my two-year-old daughter someday is going to experience something where sorry just isn't going to cut it. What can sorry do for a heart that has been betrayed by someone that they trust repeatedly? Can sorry bring back the sense of security that is found in a family before it was torn apart by divorce? Can sorry unsay those hurtful words that still ring in our ears and tell us accusing things about ourselves? Talk is cheap. Sorry doesn't pay the rent. Sorry doesn't change the past. Sorry doesn't even guarantee a better future. It certainly doesn't merit forgiveness. The longer we live, I think we begin to see that secretly, we maybe wouldn't say it, but we begin to believe that the sorry I forgive you exchange is a sham. Why do I bring this up? Well, as you know, Manuel Anglican is doing this series on the Lord's Prayer. And today we are focusing on Matthew 6, 12, which says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or the more familiar rendition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And this is my concern. My concern is if we come to this prayer with the I'm sorry, I forgive you paradigm that we were taught when we were two, this is going to be troubling for us. If we come to the Lord and and we've done something that's a minor offense, something that's no big deal, and we pray this prayer, maybe something we did just once, we might expect that God will forgive us. But does God have a threshold at which sorry doesn't cut it? That's a terrifying thought. And suddenly, I'm not so sure when I'm praying this if God is actually going to answer that prayer. Well, I have good news. God's paradigm for forgiveness is different from our society's paradigm for forgiveness. Because God is very different from you and I. Here's the big picture, the big idea that I want you to take home. Here's the big difference between God's forgiveness and human forgiveness. God doesn't forgive us because we are sorry. He forgives us because he is love. I'm going to say that again. God does not forgive us because we are sorry. He forgives us because he is love. I want to read a passage that will help us understand this. I wish I had it in your bulletins. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4 or a Bible app, or you can just listen. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, 
let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, who do, who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That phrase, God is love, jumps out at me every time I read that. It's like God is so characterized by love that it says that he is love. And that's hard for me to understand. I think of love as an emotion something that I feel towards someone. But the biblical vision of love is a verb. It is this outpouring, this giving of self for the sake of another. And that is something that absolutely characterizes God. He poured out of himself to create the world, a world that he would love. Now, you and I can never have the kind of perfection of love that God has because you and I are finite. We have limited resources limited time, limited attention. And so we can only love so many people so well. Furthermore, when somebody does something against me, when somebody hurts me, takes something from me, my limited resources make me really feel that. I feel like I've lost something. I am less because of what they've done. And so I need them to repay. I need them to suffer because they've taken something from me and I'm less for it. God is different. He's the king of the universe. That's why we pray, your kingdom come. He is the provider of everything. That's why we ask him to say, give us this day. We ask him to give us this day, our daily bread. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need to see us suffer. Now, don't get me wrong. God hates sin. In the Old Testament, we see a demand of payment for sin in the sacrificial system. He hates sin. It's a blight on his creation, and it needs to be stamped out. He created this world as a showcase for his love. All of its majesty and beauty was supposed to be this reflection of who he is, and it was supposed to return to him adoration and worship in this creator-creation dance. And so when we turn our eyes away from God towards these created things and we worship things like money and power and fame and sex and ourselves, it is a grave betrayal. It is a kind of offense that I'm sorry doesn't cut it for us. But notice God's response. He sees us in this situation where we have committed an offense that we cannot repay. He doesn't double down on demanding repayment from us. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our sacrifices. He established those to show his justice. What he does is he provides the means of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a weird word. I've never used it anywhere outside of church. (laughs) What does it mean? The word shows up in in the the Greek word, when it shows up in the Greek Old Testament, usually refers to like an atoning sacrifice. 
It is a kind of, it, it is a kind of sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin and, and makes possible this reconciliation of relationship between God and his people. What he's done is he sees this debt that is impossible for us to pay, and he pays it himself. God himself, God the Son, takes on flesh, and he suffers a death that is worth more than all of the I'm sorry's that the world could produce because God himself suffers on our behalf and dies, killing death as he raises from the dead. And this is why that is good news. Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we don't have to sit here wondering if our I'm sorry is going to be good enough. Because our sense of remorse is not the cause of our forgiveness. God wants us to be sorry for our sins, that's true. But it's not because it gratifies him to see us suffer. It's so that we'll come to our senses and come to the place where we can receive forgiveness. We confess, not because God wants to shame us by saying the things that we've done. It's because by naming them, we're able to see them for what they are. And we're able to bring them before him and say, God, please take this. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be right with you. Please forgive me. And we know that he'll answer yes, because he's the one who told us to pray this prayer. Christians for almost 2,000 years have been praying this prayer daily. And every day, God's answer has been, yes, I will forgive your debts. This is such a source of comfort for the Christian. But I would encourage you to read on. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? I'm not sure I want that to be in there. Actually, I've heard of people who won't say this part of the prayer because they're concerned about praying a curse upon themselves, that they have not forgiven those who have sinned against them, and, and, and they don't want that to exclude them from God's forgiveness. It's uncomfortable. And maybe we need to find other scripture passages to help us feel better about this. So maybe let's, let's maybe read on a little bit in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, at the bottom of your bulletin, it has the first part of this. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. That just made things worse. Okay, maybe, uh, maybe somewhere, Mark eleven twenty five. 25. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it real quick. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This seems to be a theme. Actually, Jesus told a parable about unconditional forgiveness. There was this servant who owed this king a massive debt of money that he could never possibly repay. And he begged before the king, he pleaded, and the king forgave him, right? Beautiful picture of unconditional forgiveness. Oh, wait, but there's another part of that story. The guy walks out, and he sees one of his fellow servants who owes him a little bit of money, and then he demands that that servant pay him back, and he gets him thrown in jail because the other guy can't pay him. This is what happens. Then his master summons him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The theme doesn't seem to be it's good to forgive people, but it's not a big deal if you don't. Jesus is serious about this. And it's troubling because it seems to imply that somehow we earn our forgiveness by forgiving other people. How does that work? And that can't be what it means because we know that God's forgiveness is a gift of grace, freely received. So why is this so important? Well, we need to remember something that we've already said about forgiveness. God's paradigm for forgiveness is different from society's paradigm for forgiveness. What did we say about God? He doesn't forgive us because we are sorry. He forgives us because he is love. The same goes for the Christian. We don't forgive people because they are sorry. We forgive people because God is love. The same love that pours into our hearts and results in our forgiveness is the love that forgives other people. I want to read 1 John 4, 7 and 8 again. Just listen. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It would seem that extending love to other people is a necessary part of our experiencing God's love. The two are connected. I want to try to illustrate this with a story that I made up. And because I work in IT, it is about Wi-Fi. <laughs> Suppose that you and I have a mutual friend. We'll call him Steve. And Steve has a roommate named Carl, a housemate. He lives in the, 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 the same apartment, room next door. And they get along fine, except that Carl has this infuriating habit of streaming his music really loudly, this heavy metal, to the point where Steve just can't even think. And, and somehow it seems to happen right at the time that Steve is about to Skype his girlfriend who's studying abroad in Peru. Never fails. And Steve has tried repeatedly to get Carl to turn the music down, and Carl always forgets. Well, one day, Steve is in the middle of a conversation with his girlfriend. It's getting, getting important. It's one of those important conversations. And suddenly, the music starts, and he cannot hear himself think. And finally, something snaps in Steve. And he looks over to the Wi-Fi router that is in his room. And he knows that Carl is streaming his music. So he goes over, and he yanks the thing. Excuse me. He yanks the thing out of his ear, uh, no, out of the wall. And the music stops. Blessed relief. So Steve goes back to his Skype session, and oh, wait. <laughs> Steve and Carl were using the same Wi-Fi connection. That same Wi-Fi router was blasting the signal to both Steve and Carl. And Steve cannot deny Wi-Fi to Carl without refusing it himself. Brothers and sisters, you have one heart. One heart that is capable of receiving God's love, and that same heart 
is what gives that love to other people. You cannot harden your heart against your brother who has sinned against you without also hardening your heart against God. Those two go together. What's more, the same love that you receive forgiveness from, the same source of your forgiveness, is the source of forgiveness for your brother. And you cannot deny God's forgiveness for your brother or your sister and not deny God's forgiveness to yourself. If they are outside the reach of God's grace, then that means God has a threshold. And if God has a threshold, then we are all doomed. Forgiveness is a free gift. Please don't misunderstand me. But it's not that God is waiting to see if we forgive before he forgives us. It's just that our forgiveness and our forgiveness toward our neighbor are inextricably linked with one another. They are tied to the same heart. I want to strongly, strongly warn anyone who's here today who has been holding a grudge, some kind of bitterness or anger against someone. I want to tell you that nothing poisons the heart like anger that is pent up inside. Nothing dampens our experience of joy, our ability to receive God's love, like bitterness. There are consequences to a hardened heart. Please hear me. I don't want you to be a victim twice. I don't want you to be a victim because of what they did to you and because your heart becomes so hardened that you can't receive forgiveness or give forgiveness and you turn into yourself. Now, I want to say a word because I know some of you, some of you may have grudges against somebody that you know are petty and you know that, yes, I should forgive this person. I don't need this guy up there to be preaching at me to tell me that. If, if, if that's you, you, you know that. That's, that's, that's between you and God. I want to speak for a moment to those who have a really deep hurt. Because for you, this concept of forgiveness is not an easy thing. The reason you hold that bitterness in your heart is because every time you think back to what happened, it kills you inside. And this person deserves for you to be angry at them. I want to be clear about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying that what they did to you was okay. Please hear me. God hates it as much as you do. Forgiveness is not saying that you have to like the person, that you have to trust the person. Trust is earned. Forgiveness may not be earned, but trust is earned. It doesn't even mean that that person shouldn't necessarily experience consequences because of what they've done. But what it does mean is that you are giving up your place as the arbiter of those consequences. Forgiveness is letting go of that anger that we are holding towards that person and giving it to God. It doesn't take away what happened. It just takes away my place in stewing over it. It takes away my bitterness. And it says, God, please, you take this. You handle this. And it's hard. 
I'm, I'm not pretending this is easy. This isn't the kind of thing that you don't just go to a sermon and you say, yeah, you know, like I just heard this sermon and suddenly eight years of bitterness is gone. I'm not that good of a preacher. Maybe Father Aaron is, but I doubt it. Not because he's not a great preacher, but because nobody's that good of a preacher. Forgiveness is not the work of any human being. It's the work of God, this kind of forgiveness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it, it, it's a process sometimes, and it, it can be a painful process. Sometimes God meets us in a moment of prayer. You may come to a prayer minister today, and God may just meet you there and just let something, just, so you might just feel something let go in your heart. And that's beautiful. But that's not always how it works. And so I, so I want to give you some practical things that you can do as you journey with the Holy Spirit on this. First of all, I want to encourage you to pray for the people that you're having trouble forgiving. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. See, what happens when you pray for your enemies is you give them over to God. You say, God, please, change this person. And one of two things is going to happen. Either God is, either this person is going to respond to the love of God and he's going to change them and they're going to become a new creation and you'll have a new brother or sister, as hard as that might be to hear. Or they're going to refuse and harden their hearts against God and God will see that justice is done. Either way, they are in the best hands possible and we need to be ready for that to happen. Maybe you don't want to forgive them. I mean, you want to want to forgive them. You know that you're supposed to, but you're not there yet. That's okay. God can work with that. Start there. We're going to have a time of confession today. When you're confessing the things you have left undone, in your heart say, I'm trying to forgive, Lord. I can't. Help me. God hears that prayer. Something else that you can do this week. This is something that you can make a practice. Meditate on the forgiveness that you have received from God. Have you ever noticed that some people wear a, a, a crucifix? I, that, I, I didn't grow up Anglican or anything like that, and that really weirded me out. I'm serious. Um, seeing Jesus on the cross around someone's neck. But what that is, it's not superstition. It's this reminder of the depth of God's love for you, his fierce love on your behalf. Let yourself remember that. Read from 1 John. That's a great place to read about the love of God. When you're on your way to work, on your commute, thank God for his love and forgiveness. And you remember the thing that I said about hardening our hearts? It works the other way. As we soften our hearts towards God and as we reflect on his love and mercy, our hearts begin to soften to the people around us. Remember that God has loved you with a fierce love. He has given his very self for you so that you can be reconciled to him. Receive this love and let it flow through you to others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.